Hello, welcome to Head On History. I am your host, Ali A. Alomi. I hope you were enjoying the podcast so far and having fun. Uh, this has been an interesting season. We're now in episode three, I think, um, and our exploration of the ancient world. And I hope that you're going to enjoy this podcast as well. We've got some cool stuff coming up this season. I was just going over my plans it was, as I was finishing, and there was some, some cool stuff, if I may say so, myself. Um, where I was just planning out my episode on ancient Israelite religion, which I think will be kind of cool to talk about. Um, anyways, I wanted to actually start this podcast off with a quick shout out to the History of Ancient Greece podcast. Uh, check out www.thehistoryofancientgreece.com. Uh, they released an episode on ancient astronomy just earlier this month that was really, really cool, and you should check them out. Also, the uh, the host, Ryan, did some work at UCLA, so shout out to him. As a fellow uh, UCLA fan, I was a, a Bruin there, a young Bruin when I was uh, doing my undergraduate work, a wee undergraduate graduate at UCLA. In fact, some of the stuff that I'm going to talk about today um, comes from uh, the work that that I studied there. I'm not an expert um, on ancient Egypt, which is what our topic is today. But I took some classes with uh, one of the foremost Egyptologists uh, of, of, I guess, our world, and that's Kara Cooney, who's, who's just kind of brilliant. Uh, she actually has released a lot of work on Hetpetsut, who, who we'll talk about today. Um, so a shout-out shout to, to the podcast. You can find them on Twitter. You can also find them on, on their website. In fact, if, if you want to check out any of Kara Cooney's books, um, I highly recommend it. She, I think, released one called The Lives of, of When Women Ruled the World or When Women Ruled Egypt, I think it was called. Check it out. It's a really great resource for what we're going to talk about. So today our topic is going to be ancient Egypt. And this is a kind of fascinating topic. Egypt has sparked our imagination for hundreds of years. It's not, um, in fact, one could argue that the very interest in archaeology starts with Egypt and the Bible. Archaeologists set out to try to find out if the biblical cities of Ur and Nineveh, etc. were real, uh, and they could look at it, and also if uh, they could find stuff about ancient Egypt. And that's because ancient Egypt was part of the imagination of the kind of Western classical tradition. You find it in Herodotus, you find it in the writings of the Greeks, you definitely find it in the writings of the Romans, and in fact it becomes a very important part of the sort of Mediterranean economy, uh, which we'll talk about a little bit later in this podcast. So ancient Egypt is, is something that has fascinated us. I mean, I, I don't know any young kid when I was growing up who didn't have at least a, at least a short flirtation or interest in Tutankhamun. We all were obsessed with Tutankhamun, maybe because we like saying Tutankhamun, because it's a funky name. Um, but we, I mean, we were obsessed with it. I remember when, when uh, Tutankhamun's uh, exhibit made it to Orange County. The, I forgot the name of the museum. Bowers Museum, I think it was. It was a few years back. I mean, it was a sensation. Because all of a sudden, all of us that had like an obsession within elementary school were like, oh my God, ancient Egypt. And we had once more sparked our kind of our fascination with it. It is an interesting era. And it competes a lot with... With ancient Mesopotamia as the kind of two main uh, ancient civilizations of the Near East. And they are interesting in the fact that they do intersect with one another, but they are also very starkly different. And we're going to talk about those differences, particularly in the way in which their kind of imperial ideology intersects with religion. And so let's start first by talking about this thing called religion. 
We've talked about it in the past two episodes. We've used this term, religion, you know, it comes from the uh, Latin word religio or religare, and it refers to something traditionally to bind, right? And religion, as we come to understand it, generally means personal faith or your beliefs uh, about the world itself. That is less the case with ancient and pre-modern forms of religion. Indeed, even our understanding of religion now and the word religion and kind of indicate a, a sort of post-Protestant, post-Reformation, Western Christian perspective. And I think in some ways that takes away from our understanding of, uh, of religion as a more complicated system that predates personal faith. Indeed, in, in, in the ancient world, from the Romans to the Greeks to the Egyptians to even the Mesopotamians, personal faith is not always um, you know, encompassed in religion. That might be found in things like philosophy, moral philosophy particularly, um, or ethics, which was considered a sort of separate discipline entirely, um, or even just kind of the, the mores of the ancestors, the ways that you were raised, manners, good behavior, and for example, the Arabic world, adab was a big concept, it was kind of manners. In reality, the way that we understand religion as academics, particularly as scholars of religion or historians of religion, is we see it as a system of ordering the world. That is to say, everything in the world, everything in the cosmos has its place and it has its meaning and its purpose. And your job as an individual was to locate yourself within that ordered universe and to align yourself with that order. So it has less to do with, with sort of ethics and personal faith, at least mostly so, and more about finding meaning in the everyday life and ordering your actions to be in line with the cosmos. In fact, I think one of the best depictions of this is found in the HBO series Rome, which I think was only on for two seasons, uh, but was really, really well done. And I, I couldn't recommend it more as probably one of the few visual representations in movies that accurately portrays religion in the ancient world. There is this scene in this in HBO's Rome where Pompey and Cicero, or Cicero in Latin, are plotting, and they are plotting against Caesar, and they are doing so against his agent, Mark Anthony, who is a tribune of the plebs at the time. And what they plan is this kind of vote, to vote against Caesar, to condemn Caesar, but that the last minute, Pompey would exercise his veto so that there would be this sort of symbolic, oh, look, the Senate nearly condemned Caesar to frighten Caesar, but Pompey stopped it. So this was their kind of plot. But what ends up happening is a brawl breaks out in the Senate house and no one hears the veto. The, the, the kind of speaker of the House, uh, the speaker of the Senate, the leader of the Senate is an older man who doesn't hear the veto. And they go, okay, so I didn't hear the veto. It means it cannot be entered into the annals. The, uh, the condemnation stands. It passed the House. Now, they, Pompey doesn't want this. Cicero doesn't want this. This was uh, too dangerous of a move. They had planned to kind of have their cake and eat it too, to insult Caesar, but not insult Caesar, right? To veto it at the last minute. 
here. No, it's gone too far. We're now headed towards open hostilities. And they, they turned to him to go, well, what about the fact that we never were able to close this session? So technically the session is still open and we can exercise the veto um, uh, tomorrow. And the old man goes, oh, yeah, yeah, we can we can do that. And Pompey loses his temper and goes, oh, you know, ruled by idiots. This is a stupid and silly rule. And the man goes, this isn't just a silly rule. It's a matter of religion. Now, to our modern sensibilities, we kind of go, what? What do you mean it's a matter of religion? But I think it perfectly encapsulates what I'm talking about when I say religion in the ancient world. Religion in that case isn't separate from the state. It is the way that the state functions. They go hand in hand with one another. If you were to be made an equester, if you were to be made um, an evocati, a sort of a, a, a figure, an, an elevated military figure, you did so through a religious ritual, through sacrifice and then prayers and fasting and so on and so forth. The idea that, that the sort of secular, the separation of church and state or the separation of religion and state, the notion of secularism is ex extremely modern. And even in its modern sense, secularism doesn't always mean the absence of religion, but rather the replacement of state religions with religions of the state, right? The state kind of replaces it. It's why the Star Spangled Banners has a sort of religiosity component to it. It's why the Founding Fathers are almost like a cult of ancestors. And so on and so forth. So you could still use a religious analysis there. But when we talk about religion, we are talking about the way in which society would order itself according to the cosmos. Now, why does this spiel even matter? Because I think we really see this with the Egyptians. I think the Egyptians really encapsulate this more so than anyone else. We saw it a little bit with definitely with the Sumerians, I mean, and the Babylonians. We saw how Hammurabi talks about that he is giving the laws as ordained by Chamash and as ordained by Marduk. The ancient Egyptians perfect this, this, this kind of idea of religion as ordering the universe. But they also were the first to introduce a sort of ethical component to religion. Religion had two components to it for the ancient Egyptians. On one end, it, meant to, it was meant as a series of official rituals and rites that you would practice in order to see the continuation of the kingdom, to see good harvest, to see good in life. But it was also the way in which you would live a good and honorable life. And if you did so, then you would have an experience in the afterlife that would reflect this. The Egyptians are different than the Mesopotamians. Both of them are complex societies that develop and civilizations that develop near river valleys. But unlike the Mesopotamians who developed over a course of, of almost 2,000 years or so and developed as, as a cluster of city-states that then started to band together, we see a much faster change under the Egyptians. They rapidly develop all at once, and they're unified by central, powerful rulers known as pharaohs. By 3100 BCE, by 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 um, 3100 BCE, we see 
Egypt as a unified kingdom, as related by Narmer. Narmer is believed to be the real, first real pharaoh to unite Upper and Lower Egypt. Now, Upper and Lower Egypt, in a sort of uh, a kind of reversal of, of the way we would think about it, Upper Egypt is actually south, and Lower Egypt is actually north. Lower Egypt is where the delta is of the Nile. And Upper Egypt is much further down. Now, like Mesopotamian societies, the Egyptians develop around the Nile. The Nile is the lifeblood of Egypt. But unlike the Tigris and the Euphrates, which is both the giver of life and the taker of life, the, e the Nile is far more reliable as an irrigation system. So this creates a very stable state. And indeed, Egyptian history is fascinating in this sense that even though it develops an empire, quite a big empire by the time of the New Kingdom, it expands, and, you know, quite early on, it competes with Assyria to rule in, in the Near East, particularly in, uh, in Canaan and Israelite. Uh, as well as all the way down into modern-day Sudan, it develops a pretty robust empire, and yet it doesn't. It's not always in a state of war. The Assyrians, the Neo-Assyrians, the Babylonians—they are in a near constant state of war. The Egyptians less so. They have a more stable kingdom, and I think part of this comes from the fact that there isn't the same kind of scarcity that exists. That population density which eventually leads to specialization and 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 social stratification and hierarchy which then gives birth to dynasties which then gives birth to kings and then emperors which is the process that we see in Mesopotamia and then those emperors try to covet or gather other resources as a competition of resources we don't see that same process in Egypt. Instead, what we see is a, a ruler that emerges who then unifies the, the territories, and those territories remain relatively united for most of its history until much later on. And we see that as a result of this kind of reliable, stable society, this is reflected in the cosmology that also exists. We find in what are known as the pyramid texts, these are the uh, Pyramid of Teti, uh, a very early Old Kingdom uh, funerary text, the story of Osiris and Set. Osiris was a king living in the blessed land of Egypt, and he was the dawn, he was the son of the sky and the earth, Nut and Geb, and who in turn were the children of uh, Ra the sky god, the solar deity that ruled over all, the creator of creators. Osiris ruled in Egypt, but he had a brother named Set, and Set was deeply jealous of Osiris. We don't know why. Some of the older texts indicate it's because Osiris kicked him once. <laughs> You know, imagine holding a grudge because somebody kicks you. Uh, and later on, uh, in the New Kingdom period, we find that uh, it was because uh, Osiris had slept with Nephthys, his, uh, uh, the wife of or the consort of Set. They were actually sister brothers, interestingly enough. And we'll find that the sister-brother relationships will be replicated in the monarchy. We'll talk a little bit about that in a second. But anyway, so any Set is pissed. He's, he's envious, and so he decides that he's going to kill his brother. And how does he do this? He builds this beautiful um, sarcophagus, this big, beautiful 
a wooden box and he says this is a gift to you if you can fit in it now what osiris doesn't know is that set had secretly measured him and so osiris gets in there and goes oh look i'm a perfect fit i get this gift and the second he gets in there set nails him shut throws him into the uh river and he's kind of into the nile and then some argue that he's cut up and scattered into a bunch of pieces 48 pieces osiris's dutiful wife isis a female mother goddess of fertility and a goddess of sorcery a powerful woman gathers all the pieces together wraps him up in bandages with the aid of a, a anubis uh, the god one of an underworld god a chthonic healer he she wraps him up in these pieces uh, and she breathes life to him as a falcon she takes on the form of the falcon and breathes life back into him and copulates with him just long enough to get impregnated with the god horus who becomes a falcon-headed deity horus returns uh, grows up and eventually takes vengeance against set is able to defeat set but in the process loses his eye which becomes wedget a protective amulet but he defeats set and as a result egypt is divided the Nile and its kingdom, the civilization, is all given to Horus, who will rule as the king on earth, and the desert that is barren, the red sands and the red dunes, are given to Set. This structure, the architectonic and the architecture of this mythology, reflects Egyptian society. It is viewed in an ordered way between life in the Nile and death in the desert we even see that at one point people are buried out in the desert that the desert with its scorching red winds are the realm of destruction and chaos that is where set rules and order and fertility and goodness and justice are in the cities where horus rules Unlike the Mesopotamian kings who ruled as agents of the gods, I, Hammurabi, have been sent by Marduk. No, no, the pharaohs aren't sent by the gods. The pharaohs are the gods. The pharaohs represent Horus. They are the living Horus that rule on earth as a god, as the center of cultic worship. Their will ensures the balance of the cosmos reflected in the fertility, abundance, and, and goodness of society. When they die, they then enter into the underworld to what? And join with Osiris, who was the old king of Egypt, but because he was chopped up and then wrapped up, revived and mummified, he becomes ruler of the underworld. So this balance between the ruler of the desert, the ruler of the land, and the ruler of the underworld is the kind of ordered society that emerges out of this Nile River Valley. Now, we don't know what causes what, you know, in history, there are no mono causes. So it, it would be an accurate to just say oh the environment is the cause of why they believe what they believe but it is i think fair to say that the experience with the nile and the experience with the way society emerges around the nile river valley versus the dangers of the desert and this kind of more reliable irrigation system a more uh, abundant culture 
has some impact on the, the cosmology of the Egyptians. This is a more optimistic view of the world. This is a more positivist view of the world. It's a world in where things make sense. You don't always have evil monsters out to get you. Even Set, the god of chaos, serves a purpose. He serves on the barge of Ra, the sun god, and helps Ra to defeat Apophis, the serpent of destruction. So we see that even destruction and chaos serves a purpose in the cosmology of the Egyptians. This is fascinating, right? This tells us a lot about ancient Egyptian civilization. There's even all sorts of a device literature that we find. For example, the ancient Egyptians are told to be merry and to, to enjoy their lives and to refrain from evil and, and don't be too greedy. So we see in this kind of... Um, in the same way that Hammurabi starts to create a legal code, a system in which he's trying to manage a dense population, here we start to see sort of the emergence of an ethical, perhaps moral, philosophical world. And it is the beginnings, I would argue, at least in the ancient Near East, the beginnings of a sort of moral and ethical system that becomes associated with religion, without religion being chiefly associated with that. Religion's primary focus is still what I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, ordering society, ordering the world and ordering your life according to the cosmos. Now, ancient Egyptian religion is practiced in that way, having both components. On one end, you have the cultic worship, most of it taking place in major cities. The pharaohs had their complex in Memphis, and this meant that a lot of the ritual activity happened in Memphis. These were places where um, you would have priests of various expertise, ritual experts who would carry out sacrifices and prayers and rituals that would that were aimed at maintaining the universe. These are sort of creation rituals or sort of mystery rites in which they would carry out certain, I would say, symbolic acts that would reflect the sort of symbolism of the cosmos um, and, and an attempt to ensure that there was always uh, good, sort of drawing in the good of the sun and warding off the evils of the, the desert. And in this way, they would ensure good harvest, they would ensure good life, uh, you know, they would ensure the survival of society. These rituals were not just uh, gestures of worship. These were had actual functions. They were aimed at maintaining society. And if you did the rituals wrong, then you messed things up and balance was overthrown. This balance was known as ma'at. Ma'at was this cosmic notion of balance, and it was often represented as a feather, uh, a feather that, that was able to balance the world. It represented justice, it represented truth, and so on and so forth. The second component of religion, so you have this kind of massive cultic activity with high priests and the pharaoh as Horus at the center of it. Then you have the private practices. Now, these were ordinary day rituals that you would do in your daily life. One of them being, uh, you know, how to deal with things like sickness, how to deal with things like uh, your personal harvest, how to uh, ensure safe childbirth. Religion governed these aspects as well. And what we see, for example, is 
if a person is ill, they would then make a circle using a sort of magic wand of sorts, it's a curved wooden object with thing with with uh, writing on it, and they would write a circle around that uh, sick person in order to contain the illness. And so this is the emergence of what we would call, uh, what we find in anthropological terms, the magic circle, a theme that we'll see kind of repeat over itself in various ritual practices, as well as the crafting of amulets, one of the most famous being the wedget. That would be the eye of Horus that was cut out by set during their conflict. And this eye is the Egyptian eye. We see it all over the place. <laughs> you know, nowadays people get it as tattoos on themselves. But originally it was a protective amulet and one that could be worn around the neck or could be worn on the body and it would ward off evil because it was the power of Horus warding off the power of Set. Indeed, the, that sort of charm may be the early origins of the evil eye. In fact, I'm going to do a whole probably separate special episode on the evil eye and its histories. There's all sorts of kind of complicated, um, you know, there's a complicated backdrop and story there that we can discuss at a different time. But the wedget is an example of the Mediterranean tradition of the eye. We'll talk about it also showing up in Greece as well and Turkey. So anyways, we find these different components of religion. The other aspect of Egyptian society is the building of monuments. So part of what the pharaoh did was to maintain, you know, the good society is to glorify the sun and to glorify himself and to glorify the gods. And so they would have these massive monumental building projects, all ancient civilizations, as I mentioned in kind of our first podcast of what a civilization is, has monumental building of some form. But of all the societies, I would say Rome and Egypt mastered this beyond any other civilization. Monumental buildings to, to not only indicate the power of the pharaoh, but also of the blessings of the gods, right? This was only possible, of course, through massive exploitation of slave labor. So we do know that ancient Egyptians had slavery uh, within their societies. We see slavery emerge amongst the ancient people peoples. The Assyrians certainly had slaves, and the Mesopotamians do as well. And it really comes uh, as a part of warfare. Um, it's unlikely that the early slaves uh, were anything other than uh, captives. It's possible that they may have also had some form of labor or con contractual kind of component to them. So slavery is a complex topic and a little bit beyond this podcast's kind of can to discuss, but just briefly, the ancient world had a variety of different types of slaves, and there are arguments of where the actual institutions of slavery comes from amongst different historians. There are some that argue that slavery was likely a result of the emergence of economic systems, that is, systems that, that, that produced abundance and scarcity. And when there is scarcity, people would then sell labor if they could not sell products. So if you couldn't sell or make goods or barter and trade, then you would barter and trade yourself. And this might have been the beginnings of sort of a type of indentured servitude. Most of these instances were contractual. We have some, in, for example, examples of, uh, or, or I think written documents from the 
the Assyrian world of people saying, oh, well, I'm contracted to work for this many days or this many years and so on. And so to pay off debts, we find it as a punishment uh, that, you know, you have a debt that you need to pay. Okay, so you're going to have to go work. But we also see it very frequently as, as a result of war captives. You go to war, you conquer people, and then you enslave uh, the losers, so to speak. So slavery as an institution becomes a feature of the ancient world. And various societies will rely more or less on slavery, but all of them will have slaves. None of these societies are kind of free of slavery. And Egyptian, the Egyptian economy relies on two components. One, slave labor, and two, agriculture. And indeed, the kind of reliability of the irrigation system that the uh, Nile produces and the ability to kind of also work with its various siphons and its various kind of rivulets and, and, and whatnot, makes Egypt the grain capital of the ancient world. It's the bread basket of the world, as it said. And we'll see when we talk about Rome, how, comp how you know, running Egypt or owning or governing Egypt becomes a major uh, kind of goal for people seeking political power. Caesar is very interested in it. Later on, we'll see the, the battle between Octavian and uh, Mark Anthony will center the economic importance of Egypt. And that's a result of the Nile. But the second part of the, of the kind of labor is slave labor. And slave labor is what's used to build these giant monuments. And monument building becomes a way of testifying across time that a pharaoh was there. We have, for example, uh, a series of kind of stones that were written. Uh, at one point, there is a, a pharaoh, Sesostris uh, uh, III, who was probably a uh, later, it was a, from the later on kingdoms, who really expands by right, 1878 or so, who expands into Nubia. He launches a series of, of kind of campaigns uh, into, you know, ex, you know, expanding his empire. And he leaves this giant marker, Sesostris III, this giant marker with an inscription on it that says, the living Horus, divine of form, the two ladies, the divine birth, the king of the upper and the lower Egypt, Egypt. Kakure, given life, the living gold Horus, being the son of Ra's body, his beloved, the lord of the two lands. Sesostros, given life, stability, health forever. Year 16, third month of winter, the king made his uh, southern boundary at Semna. I have made my boundary further south than my father's. I have added to what was bequeathed me. I am a king who speaks and acts what my heart plans is done by my arm one who attacks to conquer who is swift to succeed and so on and so forth so why does this matter a couple things first we have an indication here of of writing very clear forms of writing up until this point We've had writing in the forms of law codes, we have writings in the form of calculations and religious writings, but here we have writings that testify. Here is what has happened. We have writings that talk about religion, right? Like the Epic of Gilgamesh, now we have the Pyramid Texts, and so on and so forth. But these, this form of writing with Sestrostus III, we have what we would argue is propaganda as a way of writing the ideology of the Egyptians, the ideology of the king. Kingship here is being defined in very specific ways. It is defined as this 
God King, this Horus on Earth's ability to both speak and act, to do good things, but also to expand, to build up and to build outwards. Egypt, in other words, as it grows, would be seen as a sign of prosperity and the blessings of the gods. If Egypt is facing harsh times, then something is out of whack. So these markers, in many ways, reflect both the kind of religiosity that we're seeing emerge within the Egyptians, the kind of religious cosmology, the idea that goodness and abundance and sustaining life and so on and immortality and, and all of that comes from the gods and maintaining the order of the gods, but that that ideology also then gives justification for the pharaoh to expand. Right, this is the interesting thing. We saw this to some extent with the early Assyrian, with the Mesopotamian kings as well, who saw I have been ordained by the gods, and therefore I have the right to kind of expand to to demonstrate their imperial might. Right, this is the kind of the type of kingship that starts to emerge in the Mesopotamians. But we see it also with the with the pharaohs. But the pharaohs, they don't say we are ordained by the gods to expand. No, I am a god, therefore I can expand. There's this that line, I speak and my hand, my arm carries out. I speak and I have actions. My plans are carried out by my arms. This is a very important way of explaining the type of a kingship idea at the heart of Pharaonic Egypt. These were not just god kings who could live lavish lifestyles and, and, and relax. That was a benefit. These were god kings that had to act to demonstrate their might. And they did so, they did so through propaganda. That's what these massive monumental buildings were. That's where that need for slave labor comes from. It is to demonstrate, look what I can do. I am a god, therefore I can create giant pyramids. I can create these great complexes. I can put up these stone markers that would tell the world who I am. If you're my enemy, you have to face me. So it's a, it's a, a way of kind of spreading the idea of the ideology. One could even argue that it's an attempt at proselytizing, not in the sense of trying to convert people to the Egyptian religion, but to convince people of the power of the Pharaoh. And that's fascinating. This is kind of a really unique experience that we're seeing in Egypt, and really kind of the first time we're seeing an example of this. And we'll see later kings will do this over and over and, and over again. And we'll see this kind of tactic picked up by the Romans and the Greeks and so on and so forth, that we start to see the desire to demonstrate your ideology both to your or your might to your people and to the people outside. To demonstrate that, no, it's not just that the gods have blessed me, but the gods have blessed me and I can prove it. I am a god and I can prove it. Now, this also raises questions about Egyptian society as a whole, right? So one, on one instance, Egypt is probably one of the more pluralistic societies that we've seen. We see that, that women have a lot of, of, of kind of freedoms and rights and experiences. Ancient Egyptian women carried out all sorts of functions within society. Most of them worked alongside men. Many of them were in charge of finances. 
Uh, a lot of them uh, were in charge of the kind of private cultic practices. Uh, the goddess Hathor and the goddess Isis in particular, both fertility deities, were associated with magic and Ra, and so women had that kind of mis that component to them as well. But we also, despite this kind of pluralistic society, that doesn't mean everything was equal and as tolerant as we might, you know, use those words today. Egyptian women could become pharaohs, but they could only become pharaohs with some great difficulty. And part of this comes from the fact that you have this society that has a need to demonstrate its monumental building, this kind of propaganda component to it. Well, what happens when you have a female pharaoh and she builds a massive complex? Well, how does the society respond? Well, we know how they respond. There is a very famous Egyptian pharaoh, Hatshepsut, who we talked about a little bit earlier. Kara Kuning from UCLA does a lot of work on her. We didn't actually know about Hatshepsut until relatively recently because what had happened was she had been a great pharaoh and then the pharaoh that came after her erased her from the records. So this propaganda can be used both as to demonstrate your might but also as a way of determining who gets remembered and who doesn't get remembered. It raises the question of authorship and voice, who has a voice and who doesn't have a voice. The ancient Egyptians are really the kind of first people to kind of try to immortalize themselves. We will live forever because we built these buildings. But what happens if the guy who came before you, you don't like so much? Well, in this case, it was a woman, Hepchetsut, and they erased her. Even Hatshepsut, while she was alive, she had to take on certain masculine components. She would wear a fake beard in order to demonstrate her might and her power that she too could be a god. This is kind of one of the fascinating components of Egyptian society. It is a complicated, paradoxical world. On one hand, relatively pluralistic, and on the other hand, you know, Hachetsu didn't get a good deal. Later Egyptians were not particularly favorable to her. And that's because she was a woman. This is uh, partly also related to the mythology that we discussed. Who is it that becomes Pharaoh when Set is defeated. Horus. Horus is a guy. So there is a component that kind of the cosmology itself builds in that men are pharaohs. So that women can become pharaohs, but with great difficulty and often with great opposition. That said, the female deities were just as powerful as the male deities. Without Isis, there is no Horus. Without Isis, there is no Osiris. She is as equally powerful as her son and her husband. So females had a very important role in society, but because the society had some notion of order and hierarchy, there were also limitations to where women could go in society and what they could and could not do. And the pharaoh seems to be the kind of border there, the place where some women could become pharaohs not all women, and even when they did, with some great difficulty. This is the kind of an introduction to ancient Egyptian civilization. There's far more to be done here. This is far more than can be encompassed, you know, in, in one podcast. In reality, you could do a whole ancient Egypt podcast, and I'm sure there's some brilliant ones out there. But I wanted to introduce ancient Egyptian religion and the way that it intersects with pharaonic ideology, with monument building, with their idea of the cosmos and the world around them. 
uh, and how it orders society because we are going to revisit Egypt. We're going to talk about Egypt in later episodes, particularly when we talk about how uh, the Greeks come into uh, Egypt, when we talk about Alexander the Great and the fusion of kind of Hellenic society with Egyptian religions and the kind of emergence of, of deities like Ra Harekte and, and, and all sorts of kind of fascinating developments in the ancient world. But we first have to establish this kind of baseline. So I'm going to end it here. Hopefully you enjoyed this podcast. Again, this was a, just a taste of a much deeper history that we're going to go over in future podcasts. Let me know what your thoughts are. You can hit me up on social media, on Instagram and Twitter at A-A-O-L-O-M-I. I would love to hear from all of you. Um, uh, you can also, uh, if you're enjoying this podcast, head over to iTunes or Stitcher Radio and leave a review. Um, uh, we, the more reviews that we get, you know, five-star ratings and, and comments from you all, the more this podcast is able to kind of grow and expand and I'm able to kind of do more episodes. Um, of course, I will give shout outs uh, to all the wonderful people who've supported this podcast so far, um, as well as podcasts that I think are, are fantastic and you should check out. In fact, I think in our next episode, I'm going to list some of the podcasts that I think are, are that I listen to that are great. Uh, Human Circus, uh, the Ancient Greek History Podcast, uh, Wonders of the World with Drew. All of these are fantastic. Uh, footnote History. All these are great, but we'll talk a little bit more about them in future episodes. I'll, I'll give them a whole shout out, um, as well as shout outs to people who leave reviews. If you write a review, let me know. I'll, I'll read it out with a, a podcast. And if you'd like to support this podcast, uh, go to uh, audible, a free trial dot I mean, audiblefreetrial.com slash head on history uh, and check them out anyways that's all for now thank you for tuning in and remember stay smart you beautiful history nerds 